Hello and welcome to Clappercast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief Jack Wickshop, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Timmer. Hello. And Hilary White. Hello. On today's episode, we have something special for all of you. Commemorating the final day of the Stonewall riots that happened 51 years ago to this day, as well as last week's Pride Week as a whole, we are hosting a special exclusive roundtable where we are freely discussing LGBTQ films like Moonlight, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Call Me By Your Name, and many, many more that have had a broad impact on both cinema and our general culture as a whole. Let's begin with throwing to the group their first experience watching LGBTQ representation on screen, and how did that impact you? Hilary? I'm pretty sure the first time I saw representation was an actual gay pride parade on television. And that's how I found out that gay people existed in the first place. Uh, and I asked what my mother, what was going on. And she said, oh, sometimes like, you know, men and women live together as couples. And I completely uh, accepted it in that moment. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, now I know that. But as far as fictional stuff, it's hard to place exactly who the first person I saw that identified as, as gay. But um, when I recently saw the celluloid closet, they talked about the sissy archetype, like um, effeminate men in films and stuff like that. And uh, they were talking about how harmful that stereotype was. But I have a really soft spot for those characters. I always feel like, uh, men and i've known men in real life who are this way like who are you know are supposedly like they call them like extremely out or they um or stereotyped as like flaming i have a really soft spot for those guys because i feel like they're incredibly brave to just be who they are <laughs> just uh having to get up every day and remain true to who they are interacting with people like that so the Characters I definitely noticed the most were probably gay men in films, in particular um, characters like Nathan Lane in The Birdcage. I'd probably say he's the first one that I remember, um, as well as Robin Williams, as a gay couple who have a family and are just trying to, you know, hold down a very crazy situation. So for me, I would, I would have to go with Nathan Lane in The Birdcage. That's the one I remember the most and the one I love the most. I'd probably have to echo uh, exactly what you said there, Hillary, regarding The Birdcage. That's one of my personal favourite films of all time, um, with a fabulous uh, central performance by Nathan Lane, especially with um, the late great Robin Williams. I, I don't think I was particularly aware about the, the, the meaning of, of being gay. When I probably first watched that film over the years, of course, um, you, you grow up in, in this world and you evolve as a person and you understand... Um, that people are, are, are different to you and it is an easily sort of accepted thing where this, this world is a very different multifaceted place so when I look back on that film I'm sort of really pleased that it was the first sort of representation of, of this type of cinema with a really positive outlook of as you said the two very successful happy proud men who don't make any excuses they've learned life to the full they have they, well, we, in the film they obviously explores Robin Williams uh, son with them and how th their dynamic works and how everything's just accepted we, just sort of like now there'd be sort of exploration of of darker themes but it's one of those really proud features where everything's a celebration and he's got a wonderful performance of Gene Hackman who, who later in the film um, is in drag which is a wonderful thing to see from any sort of person who's seen the, um, the French Connection. I think that's probably the, the first really meaningful film I watched within this genre 
but I, I do have to mention that. So I grew up in a more conservative, more unsupporting household who also didn't like film. So I didn't start exploring film, much less queer cinema until much later in my life where I started to kind of question who I was and figure out who I was on that level. Um, and I know I've seen other queer films before this one. I cannot place many of them. But the first I really felt like I felt represented in was Call Me By Your Name, the 2017 film. Um, this It's a really beautiful, natural love story that isn't just, oh, two men like immediately start kissing and they immediately go through this very rushed romance. But I saw that fact of flirting with someone and having a desire for someone and not knowing if they would like you back and all those really realistic emotions that I was feeling at the time as a young gay man. Um, and I just remember watching that film and being not only heartbroken by the ending and not only taken back by the amazing filmmaking, but truly seeing so much of myself in those characters, which I think is one of the best parts of representation. No matter what angle you're looking at it in, it is a factor of seeing yourself and your emotions portrayed through a film. Um, and at the time of my life where I first saw Call Me By Your Name, it just really, really reflected what I was going through on a personal level with certain different details in my life. Um, and I remember that being a really impactful film on my life. Let's move on uh, to a broader conversation and a discussion on representation cinema as a whole. So Carson, let's throw it over to you. Um, what are your thoughts on representation cinema as a whole as of 2020? I think in many ways it's getting a lot better and getting a lot worse. I think in general though, there is definitely more of an acceptance of showing representation, whether it is in major roles. Um, we can talk about Love, Simon in different blockbusters or even in smaller roles. I know films like The Shape of Water recently um, have had smaller roles that try to explore the LGBT um, world. Uh, can You Ever Forgive Me is another example of that. Um, but one thing I'm seeing a lot of that is a little bit troublesome, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, um, is the fact that sometimes it feels like representation is just one of those items that they just check off on a list, and it's very disingenuine. Um, so in general, I think having more conversations of LGBT representation is what we're getting, and I think that's an overall positive. Um, I think it's a dual-edged sword in some situations. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree that representation is getting better. At the same time, because it's getting better and we're becoming more aware of all these different um, gender identities, um, sexual orientations and different ways of living, that it's becoming more front and center. So it's being talked about a lot more and being debated a lot more. Um, and as a consequence to that, I think there's just a lot more of a demand for it, which is a good thing but we're also dealing with a system if we're particularly talking about mainstream film that is so entrenched and has certain people within it who are you know cis or straight um that are worth more money that that's going to be a problem it's probably going to be a problem for a long time as far as actually getting people in the room who do have these experiences or do lead those kind of lives you know writing directing acting that kind of thing. I feel like that's still in stasis. It might accelerate quite quickly and there are already people who are LGBT who are working within that system, but there's still kind of a preference for casting cis straight people in gay roles. So that does concern me a little bit, but at least, so at least the stories are getting out there, but the actual representation is still, I don't know, it's kind of hitting a wall. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to touch on here. Um, 
I think I'm going to begin with the fact that art as a whole is a great reflection on society. And I think in even the most darkest of times, there are artists out there who reflect in their own way. And if that's painting, if that's songwriting, if that's design in general. But I think in cinema, it's always been a powerful notion. I mean, we're going to talk about some extremely worthwhile classics on the notion of art reflecting society, especially with trauma. There'll always be art for representation. And I think you look back in 2008 when uh, the 2008 California Pro- Proposition 8 was uh, was was passed, which would legalise um, gay marriage. You had like, you know, Gus Van Sant's Harvey Milk biopic with Sean Penn, which maybe 12 years later, that's maybe not the actor you want to perform that role and, and be defined in it. But there's always going to be representation in the time of need. And obviously, like I said, with, with uh, the five bloods that, that's a great example what's happening in the last 10 years is that we've we're evolved now as a culture to fully accept thankfully all walks of life and all walks of people the problem with that in cinema is i think if you look back like i said in 2008 2009 10 11 12 is that you come at a time where people are pushing and pushing pushing and nobody really knows the boundaries at that point so we look back now in hindsight and I think we, we look back in it and we can determine whether well perhaps that's not the best representation or perhaps uh, as Hillary said the, the correct and uh, appropriate representation on sexuality and, and, uh, and, and gender so in the last five years I felt like that sort of quieted down a lot with, as, a, as a culture and especially regarding art and cinema that as a whole we're almost past that now where we're understanding that the what what basically problematic means that's what i'm trying to get here and i think that's always going to be a positive but the problem is if if something is such in high in demand and something is showcased to a large quantity unfortunately what happens there is saturation and i think just to hit on what carson said is that i think unfortunately big businesses corporations see saturation and not understand that right we can be a part of this Let's do our part, but let's not replicate what someone else has done better. And I think the problem with that is that obviously money is involved. So what Disney do, and I, I don't I don't want to go off on Disney, and we spoke about this and alluded to this multiple times, just do the checklist. And I I think that's more damaging than understanding that right, we have a we have a platform, let's do what we need to do for representation, to help a, a brand new generation come to terms with that they're not alone. They can be safe in who they are, that not everybody in their local small town is, is going to hate them for, for who they are and what they are. And instead, what Disney do is, well, actually, we've got three seconds here. Let's have a, have, have a, a queer scene, but let's not integrate it whatsoever throughout the, the film or throughout their whole monopoly of, of, of uh, big business. I mean, I had a discussion last week on the podcast regarding Wende, Benny Zeitlin's um, sophomore effort after The Beast of the Southern Wild, where he has a blind casting, so he has a Peter Pan played by a young black child. And watching the film, that makes zero impact for me, aside from it being a rather a marvellous inclusion of uh, minorities in cinema. But you have the odd few who complain that Peter Pan is white, yet they often forget that Peter Pan isn't real. And I often forget, I often think overall, Disney often forget that there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with having Finn or Poe being gay. They're not real people. So there should, be no, there, should, there should be no real issue of integrating LGBTQ within that blockbuster universe, especially in Star Wars, within MCU, which repeatedly we, we get conversations of, well, that character's coming, that character's coming. Captain Marvel was a decade after the fact. I mean, Black Panther was almost a decade after the fact. These are films that are coming far too late. So for 2020, 
I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid, and I'm going to sort of go into this conversation um, a little bit uh, after this, but I'm afraid that blockbusters and big business are not doing their fair share. And that brings me on to the comparisons between ind independent cinema and the blockbuster. And I've alluded to it again, I'm not going to sort of explicitly say, but I don't think blockbuster has done enough within, since, since let's sort of define it by the era of Jaws, from that moment on, whether blockbuster, summer blockbuster, for example, was, was coined. They haven't done enough. And I understand that, that, you know, as I said, art reflects society. And within those years, you've got traumas on huge masses, which sort of reflect. So I can understand that you can't throw everything um, at a schedule or a director sort to, to, to craft. But in the last 10 years, I've been deeply disappointed. Whereas in the independent circuit, probably from its humble beginnings, it's always been a massive massive proponent of crafting lgbtq cinema so i just wanted to throw out there of your your two opinions on uh, on blockbuster versus independent lgbtq cinema what i think it comes down to for blockbuster specifically with disney is just a fear they have a fear that even when they have a three second clip of two people kissing or two men dancing they have to edit it out for other countries they feel the need to because they want to make as much money as possible if you have uh two main characters who are gay not easy to edit out and for some reason they're not they're afraid despite having all the money in the world seemingly, despite probably still making millions of profit, even without one country or without the support of certain states, let's say, or certain theaters. Um, I remember with Beauty and the Beast in 2017, there were some theater chains that were blocking the film, not even playing the film at all, simply because at the very end of the film, they had two guys dancing in the background of a scene. Um, I think it is a little cowardly when you have that much money and you have the chance to make a statement and still make a profit to just refuse to and try to give the most minimal effort as possible and then to publicize it. And I think that's the part where it feels very insulting. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's when before Avengers Endgame, they put press releases out saying there's going to be the first gay character in the MCU only to have it be one throwaway line for a character that is barely seen in like one scene. Before Onward, they did the same exact thing. Uh, for Disney Plus, they put out a short called Out, which is this beautiful little short, but they tout these things as major accomplishments and they tout these things as the studio making, you know, taking a chance and really using their voice for good um, when it's really not. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about independent cinema is the fact that they're not worried about marketing to a global mainstream audience. They're much more willing to take risks um, because they're not worried, oh, am I gonna have to edit this out for China? Am I gonna have to worry about certain states' reactions? It feels like they're much more willing to take risks despite financially being in a much worse position than let's say Avengers Endgame or Star Wars The Last or um, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, Disney could take those risks much easier and still make a profit and they just choose not to and then decide to tout as if they are making progress. Um, but one thing very interesting I thought you found just to kind of not change the topic but just put a little side conversation in here is you mentioned that cinema and art reflects the society and that made me think back because we have this modern take on queer cinema and this modern take of representation. But going back even to like 1935, The Bride of Frankenstein, right? That director is openly gay and that film has been retextualized by many by have, 
by many for having uh, queer themes. And I think it's interesting when you look throughout the history of cinema and the history of film, and you see all these directors and screenwriters who put in all these gay subtexts, I think it's really interesting to see that. And I think it tells a larger story about how the queer community has always been around and they have always had their voice, even if it's not out in the open, not on screen to men kissing, not um, touting that, oh, this is a gay film as so many films do now. I think that is an interesting point that I've never really thought of is how those are signs of a living, breathing queer community in America and in the world. Um, even back when it wasn't socially acceptable to say that out in the open. Um, I agree with Carson. Representation has always been there. There have always been people who are closeted, who have been contributing to this amazing zeitgeist that impacts a lot of people's lives. And for my part, I think I've always been a little flummoxed by the fact that there isn't more representation because especially just from my point of view, it seems that people just want it more they want it, like they really, really want it. Like I was hearing recently that there, um, when Letterboxd started, it seemed to be, you know, more film-centric, people who really cared about film, but then it seemed like the Tumblr crowd moved in and the Tumblr crowd is incredibly gay and angry and hilarious. So there's a lot of times where I look at films that I enjoy, but a lot of the comments are just like, this was gay, or they're like, this wasn't gay enough. There's a lot of gay people out there who have been a part of the cinematic universe for a long time and they aren't getting what they wanted. And if studios gave them what they wanted, it would explode. I don't understand like why they won't monetize it. I mean, cause that's the way they think they're being counters. There's so many gay people who want to go to the cinema and see themselves and they would make so much money. And there's even been some examples of actors and actresses. I think especially actresses, it's really, really hard for you to pivot your career once you become a certain age. But if you look at someone like Rachel Wise, for example, who is starred in The Favorite and Disobedience, suddenly she became huge with the gay crowd. That's incredibly meaningful for them. And it, in some ways, I don't want to say it like revamped her career. She's doing fine. But she's being seen in a different way by a segment of the audience that hasn't noticed her before. Um, in some ways, I'd say Kristen Stewart being out as... Um, Actually, I don't know what she identifies as, and she's, I think she's gone on record saying it doesn't matter. But being someone who has dated both men and women, that she suddenly became incredibly important to the queer audiences out there because they see a little bit of themselves in her. And that's important. And that's why I think some of the films that she's been in recently have been somewhat more successful and interesting because she does have a different quality than other actresses. In fact, it wasn't until I saw Camp X-Ray that I realized that Kristen Stewart is just a dude. Like she should just be taking roles for men because she has a very different energy than playing an ingenue or you know, being in a costume drama or a romance or anything. She just is a very different person. And I think queer audiences see that. So as far as representation, I'd say, I think it's a huge mistake for studios to not try to include more people because they would make probably way, way, way more money and they would have more credibility. I think the comparison here, and I don't always want to throw it back to the MCU, but it, I think them being the powerhouse they are, I think they should take precedent of, of the platform they have. I mean, all you would have to look about, Hillary, what, what you, you said before about 
giving um, audience representation is look at Black Panther. I mean, that, that costs nothing more to make than anything else. It's primarily a black cast with, I think, one white actor, which is Martin Freeman, I believe, throughout, which is a prominent actor, well, specifically Andy, Andy Circus as well. So that's two. You've got Chadwick Boseman, you've got Lupita Nyong'o, you've got huge players within that minority community where they haven't been given representation before and then it implodes i mean it makes a billion dollars it gets oscar nominated the first thing um well the first sort of reflection within that genre uh, since the dark knight but that's another story entirely so not only is there monetary value there there's also critical acclaim now these studios eat that up They, they need that look at netflix netflix need need an oscar to sort of cement them as a big player everybody needs to feed their ego so by virtue, it is, it is that question where it's like, it's beyond the point now where understanding it, it's more demanding that you have the money, you have the platform, there is an audience here that already wants it, just make something that appeases everybody and you get what you need and then the audience get what they need. But then that, that then becomes slightly problematic of then it becomes tokenism, where it's, it's almost like, look, we know we've got a community here, let's just throw them this almost like throwing something uh, uh, without any passion to, to a crowd who then may become dis- disadvantaged by seeing something that doesn't really speak to them. There's no love, there's no craft there. And going back to, to Carson's about the independent circuit, I mean, we're talking about James Whale in 1935. We're talking about maybe 70, 80 years ago. Queer cinema's always been here. And I think if it hasn't happened now, I mean, we live in 2020. We live in a, in a time now where to, to be different is, is to be celebrated. If it hasn't happened now, representation, I have this horrible feeling it never will. And I can't, I, and I know that's such a horrible stance to have because I, I, I just seem like I don't have any hope. And I, I want to, I want to, I, I do. I do think that there, there's, there are producers, there are filmmakers, there are studio heads out there who are trying to get this off the ground. As Carson said, there's so much at play now regarding China, regarding certain parts of the world where you have to edit this, you have to edit that, you have to censor the whole point of being expressive. Now, to me, independent cinema doesn't have that issue. And understandably, money then becomes a difficult conversation to have because obviously the independent market struggle with financing. I think, but representation, while it's been minimal, has always been there, it's always been a celebration. And I think that if this happens on a larger scale of, let's say, I don't know, Captain Marvel 3, that there's a a trans character in it, which would be a marvellous thing to have. I don't think that trans audience are too bothered about that. I think that they're happy within the independent circuit, knowing that stuff like Port Authority with the trans characters included. I don't want to speak on behalf of that community, so I do apologise. But I think what I'm trying to get at is that I think regarding representation i think blockbusters are not the be all end all anymore if they aren't gonna step up then they aren't going to step up it's been 70 80 years within the prime of cinema they're making more money now than ever what hillary hillary alluded to with audiences there willing and waiting in the wings for representation and it hasn't come i don't think it will do which is a really sad sentiment to have because it sounds like I don't ever have any hope, but the whole world of Hollywood, 
looking at it from the outside doesn't fill many people with hope regardless of what's happening in the last two or three years with certain producers certain stars so having hope within that sort of cesspool is a difficult notion to have but i think the independent market has been so strong and has been there every corner i mean they've, they've pushed the boat quite a few times of representation with a port authority being one but we look through sort of independent cinema in the last five or six years going back to the previous point of representation i think they've done a marvelous job and they're still fighting the cause i mean they've had a few duds with representation i think the danish girl being one looking back now which i alluded to before my previous point i think we look back and now and think perhaps that's the sentiments are there but it's not the greatest of representations because it doesn't have a trans character performing a trans role i think that's probably a topic i want to move on to next um we talk about correct representation and it'd probably be a secondary to what I've just spoke about, about representation in general and the independent versus blockbuster. But regarding true representation, I feel the blockbuster will never live up to that expectation because it doesn't understand that money doesn't mean everything to an audience member. I think representation means everything to an audience member, regardless of creed uh, or whatever. I think if you can see yourself upon the cinema screen, that then is a life-changing affirmation of I can be whoever I want to be. What do we all feel the reason why trans representation and, and having a gay superhero, why do we think that's not yet come about then? I think a lot of it, like I mentioned before, comes down to just money and comes down to fear. Um, and I, I wonder very similarly to you what it's going to take, because I thought for a long time that would be approval that the general public would accept a gay story, which came in the form of Moonlight. Not only is that gay, it's about a Black queer experience. It won Best Picture. It made a good amount of money. Um, and I thought that was going to be the turning point for a long time, as far as that's when people in studios will start respecting these stories and start creating more of them and really go to representation. Um, and it just sadly didn't happen. Um, I do want to push back, though, just very quickly on one point you made that we should accept that um, blockbusters are not the end-all be-all. Because speaking on my personal experience coming from a community, um, a family, who it wasn't an option to be gay. We didn't have any gay figures I could look, look up to. Um, I didn't have anyone who said, oh, you might be gay. It's okay to be gay. I didn't think that was a possibility. I, up until middle school and high school, when I luckily met people in my life and met friends who were very accepting, I felt like there was this hole in me that I just didn't understand. And it wasn't until I saw that representation and I saw that it was a possibility that that was able to be filled. And I know where I'm very lucky to have those people in my life who I met through friends who made it that, to, to show me that it was even a possibility and to show me who I was. Millions of people don't have that in their education. Millions of people go to where they feel even more ostracized and they have no representation in that matter. And we all live, all three of us, on this very like weird bubble where we experience cinema from a very different standpoint. We check out independent films. We check out queer cinema. Um, and we have those options, but I know millions of people don't even know it's a thing. You mentioned Port Authority. Um, and I just think about all those teenagers and all those young people who go just to the blockbusters, who don't pay attention to independent cinema, who don't get to see the Port Authorities, the Portrait of a Lady on Fires, um, even the Call Me By Your Names, even the Moonlights. They don't get to see those. And I just think about all of the people out there who 
that's their only form of media that they intake, say what you want about it. Um, who just having that representation on screen would open a door for them that could literally change their lives. Um, so I think where sadly it's not there. And I also feel very kind of down in this moment after the Moonlight win and seeing what that did for representation in the community on a large scale or bit small scale, seeing the financial gains of Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians, which made $238 million and wasn't even part of a big MCU uh, series. Um, it's definitely something that I feel down on, but I think it's something that is impossible and it shouldn't be something that we just say, oh, it will never happen and we need to move on. Because that is going to be the point where millions can see themselves and learn about themselves. Um, and I think that's just a very important point. Yeah, just to clarify, uh, well, I think what I meant with the fact that I'm just sort of angry with the whole studio system. I don't, when I say it's, it's not the be all end all. I think obviously I think that comes from a, a form of privilege as well when we speak about the independent cinema that is available to someone who's film centric is far more um, prominent rather than it would be to someone who does want to find out their sexuality like I said in, in a small town. So I can I, I most definitely understand that and I think that's where I probably see it from a different perspective. I think again like my representation is on screen I can sort of forget about it so I, I sort of completely understand what you what you mean by that and I, I think that probably goes to show again the sort of privilege within rep representation when I say it's be all end all I don't think that the blockbuster will ever give that representation and that's not to stop fighting and get out for it or anything like that I'm just so repeatedly frustrated with their disenfranchised viewpoint of well actually if we can make 200 more million more dollars sending it to China and we can cut this scene out, which would mean more to a person who is struggling with their sexuality, but we can make $200 million. And that means that we can then take, take a tax bonus and then we can then make millions of dollars behind closed doors. That will always take momentum over representation, I think. And that's what I think I'm trying to say is that these people in suits and ties who make decisions, who are 60 year old white men, who have no idea what it's like, like I said, even for myself, to grow up um, in the shoes of someone who feels alone because nobody they see or, or acts the way they, they do, it will never change because those people will never put themselves in those shoes to begin with. They will never act upon that. And expecting them to change when in the last five years where we've just seen them start to turn and then they're going back on promises and they're not, doing their due diligence within society, I don't think we'll ever get that. And that is a very pessimistic viewpoint. And I understand that's probably against the fight, but I'm so sick and tired of blockbusters. I think I'm actually a lot more optimistic. And uh, there's a few reasons why. I mean, first of all, these guys who are running everything, they're gonna die. Everyone dies. And there's a quote I like very much, you know, all palaces are temporary palaces. Empires fall, things change. And we don't know at this point who exactly is gonna rise up to top positions over the next hundred years or so. So there, I think there is hope out there. And even if there was never a blockbuster, like let's say we were talking about the MCU or we were talking about Star Wars and that kind of stuff. I don't think, I think the only reason the community would show up if they tried something is to see if they were represented. And so far it's been disappointing. But at the same time, 
Um, I have to say that the community is incredibly smart and discerning and they are able to find messages. They're able to find pieces of themselves, maybe in something that wasn't necessarily meant for them, but maybe someone snuck something in there. Like we were talking about the Bride of Frankenstein and that's just one of many, many different um, examples out there in early cinema. So I am more optimistic, especially with everything being online. It's mind blowing. I mean, talking about word of mouth, it's so much stronger now. I think if there is something that's very important, it will eventually find the right audience because if you have gay friends, bisexual friends, asexual friends, transsexual friends, intersex, queer, non-binary, whoever, if they find something that means a lot to them, they'll share it with each other because everybody needs that. So outside of the blockbuster system, I don't think it's something that's going to change now maybe not even in five years. There is a part of me that hopes, and maybe this is very naive, that one person, like maybe one studio will do it and it'll be so successful that everyone will just like run for it, you know, and realize that it's not a big deal anymore. But even if it doesn't, there's just, there's too many people who are connected to each other now who can circulate this kind of material and find representation on their own, which isn't necessarily fair, but it's better than nothing. So it's a mixed bag. I think that's one of my favorite parts about the LGBTQ plus community, especially when it comes to film, is their ability to come together and find throughout history, whether it's the Rocky Horror Picture Show or modern examples like Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Love, Simon, where if you go online, there are so many teens who found a community just going to those screenings and they saw those movies many times. Um, and even circling back to a documentary that came out this year, Circle of Books, uh, and the subject of that documentary, not the documentary itself, but it talks about a gay uh, bookstore in Los Angeles and how much that community space meant to the LGBT community. Um, having those places, whether it's Rocky Horror Picture Show, Love, Simon, bookstores, pride parades, where you can just see the community and be with them, I think is hugely impactful for LGBT, the community, but also youth in general. And I think film is a great example of where that comes together. Um, and I think that's one of the best parts is that sense of community and coming together and showing that this is a safe space, this is your community, let's go and have this communal experience, which is something uh, that I've been lucky to experience multiple times. And I think it's a fundamental part of a lot of people's experience with the community. Before I did this podcast, I actually reached out to some friends of mine um, who are in the community and asked them what was the most important thing for them. You know, what's a film that they saw that changed their lives as a film where they finally saw themselves. And of course, they have to go through a lot of material that's very hetero, very cis, and very much not of their, uh, their experience. But what surprised me the most was they found a lot of themselves in comedy. Um, and sometimes it can be something that is sort of unexpected. A friend of mine brought up In-N-Out with Kevin Klein, which came out in 1997. He said that was the first time he saw a movie about somebody coming out that, you know, it was a comedy. I, don't, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I don't know how it holds up or um, what the gay community thinks about it now. But it was a coming out story. It was extremely important to him and made him feel like he wasn't alone um, in a very isolated time, you know, not having the night, the internet, not having the community. Um, another friend of mine brought up that, but I'm a cheerleader was incredibly important to her, you know, and that's also a comedy and it's a satire of, you know, trying to convert gay people to be straight 
Um, but, you know, RuPaul is like the camp counselor who we know is out in real life. So there's a lot of um, subversion there. I think, I honestly, yeah, I think that no matter what, people are going to find things, even if it's an, an unexpected place or a place that it, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to find it, they still will. So the one thing just to move on about being a, a white cis man is looking at this community is that this is a community where it's fully accepting of who they are, but also of who you are as an audience member or just as a person. I mean, we spoke about Rocky Horror Picture Show, Carson, and I, I've been to a, a late night screening of that on Halloween in in Missoula, in Montana. And that that is a, a, a in other certain words, that is a democratic town um, in, a, in a conservative county or a conservative um, state, if you will. I'm, and even though that is a film that is a representation of cult cinema, but also of LGBTQ um, representation as well, it's a film that defies because on one, I mean, well, it's played throughout the moment, but let's say for one day of the year, it's a film that brings everybody together in a communal group. I think that that's what this cinema does. Look at the, the Birdcage, even though you can argue like it is a comedy that's meant to be sort of shown in a group and it's not something darker like Neil Jordan's uh, The Crying Game or anything like that. But this representation, it's, 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 not, a, it's not a group where it's like, well, you're, you're not allowed to watch this. This is ours. Like a lot of cinematic people or fans of film per se get really attached to cinema. And it's almost like, it's one for us and nothing for you. Whereas this, this is a, this is like a, 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 almost a culture, if you will, where it's like, yeah, come on in. Let's, we're going to watch something that's camp. We're going to watch something that's queer. We're going to watch something that, that's, that's fun. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but at the end of the day, it's representation. And it's, it's amazing how it's done. So Rocky Horror Picture Show is one that everyone can get, get dressed, get dressed, everyone can get dressed up as characters and, 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 and devour the absurdity of the picture but also like overall it's just so welcoming and i think that's 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 one of the beautiful aspects of this sort of community where it's it's full of representation no matter who or what you are it's just like you you go to anywhere where this representation is showcased i look at rupaul's drag drag race for example a little bit off topic but even though it's a comment it's like comedic base and it it became it's like quite nasty way it pits people together it's still a, a place where it's a celebration of of personality it's a it's always a celebration of who you are and what you are and it's it's like amazing but we counter that against the more blockbuster oriented stuff and not to go on but we look at like love simon which came out a few years ago with nick robinson in the lead where at the time, I think in my review, I was like, this will, this will save someone. This is actually like, it, it, it does sort of direct itself at a certain white demographic, demographic, should I say. So as I said before, looking back on it, you can sort of nitpick and be like, well, actually this, this and that, this and that, this and this. But at the time, I think it, it does help those young kids in the high school system, which is brutal. Anywhere you live, high school is brutal for anybody. It's never nice. And I think it gets an escape. And I think that culture of Rocky Horror Picture Show is an escape as well. It's an escape against the social norm, the social abstract of, of normality. And it's about fluidity, sexuality, and, and power of 
of, of, of being empowered in itself. So I was quite proud of the fact that, well, actually, you know, even though Disney are doing one thing and it's sort of secluding another another type of minority, but at least, I mean, at least they're doing something. And then we've just found out a few months ago that the spin-off series Love, Love Victor, which was meant to play on Disney+, Plus, has been pushed to Hulu because it was adult-oriented themes. And, I, and again, like the whole point of this community is to be a celebration of who you are, what you are, and to be an all-encompassing, please come and join us, let's just celebrate. It doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you can speak English or whatever. Like, it's just a culture of celebration. And I just find that such a patronising thing from Disney to do again, where it's just, it's, and it's not probably the wrong word to use, so I apologise again, but it's almost segregating minorities again, and it's segregating communities well actually we've got a big platform let's put it on hulu which i'm not saying it's not a big platform but it's because it has adult oriented themes i mean i'm just i am lost with this love victor and love simon debate i'm halfway through love victor right now i'm actually currently watching it for review on the website clapper um but i mean there's nothing really adult about it it's a very standard teen show it just happens to be about a kid who's questioning his sexuality um it, it's I mean, as I mentioned before, it's patronizing when Disney puts out press releases saying there's going to be a gay character. Oh, it's a big thing. It's an Avengers Endgame and it's one line. It's patronizing when they want to say, oh, we're producing all this uh, LGBT content. Oh, we're showcasing it. Look at us doing great. But we're going to put it on Hulu. Actually pull it from Disney Plus and put it on Hulu after announcing it's going to be on Disney Plus. Um, and it absolutely is just because they want to try to keep it safe. They want to play the game safe. Um, it, it's so frustrating to see. We speak about, you know, patronising the audience, said Carson. And I think that the, the, the reason why this community is so great as well is because something like this happens. And it, like I said, it, it's patronising. It's, uh, it's against everything that audiences expect, representation. But I think this community then goes forward and says, like, that's fine, we'll find something else. And something else is made and then they put that on a pedestal and it's like let's support this so there's a, it's sort of like whereas I, I i come away from this and i, I find like i'm disgusted by disney and I, I i sort of live in that bubble where i generally want to like keep on fighting against them whereas i think it comes from sort of a fact of that i've never sort of been oppressed or repressed and restricted anywhere but this community has but they still take it in their stride and it's like well you know this is just a, this, I think it goes to showcase the power and the strength of that community. That's what I'm trying to say is that even with one setback, they don't fold. And it's, a, it's, it's another day to fight. You, I mean, you have to look at John Walters, um, just for an example. I mean, that is a director who consistently has put queer cinema out for, for audiences and fans, never knowing that anybody would want to watch it, just making like abstract, ultra distinctive queer cinema and audiences flock to it i mean again like people will find it i mean not to sort of reiterate the field of dreams quote but if you build it people will come and and as much as that's sort of like a, a trashy um horrible sort of sentiment to make and, and cringeworthy i think it by definition it's true if you build something and people are, are not then ready it'll take time but people will then find it i can only imagine what the what the <laughs> 2020 equivalency of John Waters, Divine, <laughs> and Pink Flamingos is now. I mean, it, it's fascinating. But then again, we live in a world where, you know, VHS was was a, 
you know, you had Betamax. Here we've got uh, DVDs, we've got Blu-rays, we've got streaming sites that are just huge. But I was just thinking um, to, to, to end this conversation on Independent and Blockbuster. The thing here, and, and please let anyone uh, point this out if I'm wrong, but the way to go about this is that to make a, an LGBTQ streaming platform to have representation on offer for four ninety nine dollars or pounds or euros or rupees or pesos of, of, of whatever kind to make it affordable and cheap and to get a whole host of LGBTQ representation showcased at the highest highest platform possible. I mean, Netflix have, have, have lately, due, due to the protests, have done a, a Black Lives Matter sort of segment on their platform where you can watch um, black cinema. But it would be great if we could have one sort of platform that didn't even have to be huge if it had, it's if it was like movie, if it had like 30 films on a month and every day one would go off and one would go on. I think that would be a great inclusion to have. It would be affordable for people who, who then couldn't go out to the cinema, who then couldn't go out to independent cinema, but could have sort of a balance of both and could be showcased that this cinema exists and it would still be um, remotely accessible. Um, does this thing already exist or do we feel that that may be sort of a pipe dream? I don't know whether a strictly LGBT streaming service exists. If it does, um, that would be really, that's really interesting to me. I have noticed with some streaming services that they almost always have an LGBT section. Uh, with Canopy, they do. With Netflix, they, they have. And I know that it was a joke a few years ago how the Babadook ended up on there. So the Babadook suddenly became a gay icon because they made a mistake. Uh, so there are kind of subsections and streaming services that we already have. And of course, you know, playing the game, they usually have more of that upfront during Pride Month. Um, and we're having more representation now with Black Lives Matter, which I have mixed feelings about uh, because I just really, really hope it's genuine, that they're not being disingenuous, like pushing something like, look, we're, we really, really care about this and you just never know. You never know whether they really do or if they just want to get more people streaming on their platform. I will say this though, if there was a streaming service that was strictly LGBT and had a lot of stuff that I'd had never had access to and really wanted to see, I would pay for it. Done and done. Same. Um, I think that plenty of streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, um, here in America, the Criterion Channel, I don't know if that's also um, global yet. But I know they have really wonderful LGBT sections, which I think is great for not only the community, but others getting that representation out to others. But I think an LGBT just strict streaming service with unique offerings from modern um, cinema, with modern cinema and classic cinema would be something I'd be super interested in and I would love to see. Um, it's something that even those in the community, there's always more voices to be heard. The LGBT community, it's kind of lumped into one thing, but it's a very, very big group of people with a lot of different voices, a lot of different perspectives. Um, and I think things like trans cinema, bisexual cinema, pansexual cinema, those are things, uh, people of color in the queer community, those are mar even more marginalized voices than just being queer in general in cinema and having a place where you can actually go and explore and hear those voices um, would be greatly important, I think, and that'd be something I'd be really interested in. Just thinking on it further, I think, I think the slight issue with that platform would be the curation of what is socially acceptable and what isn't. So I think 
if you had it curated by, let's say, a, a filmmaker. So if, if uh, Todd Haynes was on there, for example, or um, Gus Van Sant, I think you you could uh, you could regulate it to a point where it would be appropriate. But I think that even then, I think it becomes murky waters when something like Dallas Bias Club is then included. Because as, as I've mentioned before, I think it's easy to look back on something and sort of deny its intentions when we have cinema now that is a far greater representation. But I mean, we're, we're looking back nine years or so now. I mean, not nine years, it's 2014, something like that. So we're not looking back so long, six or five or six years. But that is a gargantuan amount of time within cinema. I mean, you look at special effects, how it, it, it evolves. I mean, that is the exact same for representation as well. So that's my only fear that we'll have something like Dallas Buyers Club. And I think looking back on that film, while it did win its Oscars, and you can argue in, in all, all fair purpose, it then sort of becomes slightly problematic with the fact that you've got two cis white men performing roles where one of them is a gay character and the other one is trans. I think it then becomes slightly problematic. I don't know. It's a, it's a, that then furthers the, the question I'll put out is that regarding performance representation, I can say for myself, I think it's got better, but there's always this lingering argument where performance demands acting where it's it, it, the, the, where stars want to sort of act as a tree, they're allowed to. And I think that's the whole sort of conversation with the Scarlett Johansson controversy where that was like an in-joke on Twitter. It was like, well, if uh, Scarlett Johansson wants to play a tree, then she should be allowed to. And I think people sort of minimalise the whole problem in general where it's, it's, it's not the fact that someone's denying someone a performer to, to play a character. It's that that representation throughout cinema hasn't been a rather strong, nor has it been a prominent, accurate representation. So I just want to throw it out to, to you both there about, do you think that it becomes slightly problematic now where if, if an actor wants to perform a gay character and they're not gay, do you, do you both feel that that's slightly disingenuous? There's the recent documentary on Netflix, Disclosure, that's produced by Laverne Cox. And I think that that's a very important film, kind of like The Celluloid Closet, which I mentioned earlier, although that was made in 95. So it probably seems incredibly outdated now in some regard, but it's very important for people to just listen and have certain things pointed out to them that as far as representation or storytelling that you might not have even necessarily noticed. And with Dallas Buyers Club in particular, that was discussed in the film regarding how not only in that film, but films like Dog Day Afternoon, um, and there were some other ones that are slipping my mind right now. It's very much about, you know, cis men presenting in a female way and winning awards for it when the community that they're representing is still oppressed and isn't necessarily really represented in the film. Um, with Scarlett Johansson, I know she's taken hits from two different communities, which was, of course, you know, the Asian community, which is totally deserved, and the trans community, which is also very deserved. And to come up, to go on record and say, I should be able to play whatever I want, I should be able to play a tree is definitely a sign that that's someone who's not really in touch with those communities. And this seems, might be a little rough to say, just doesn't care. So, I think when you have people, famous people saying things like that, it makes it all the more important for 
there to be actual representation because there's a huge difference. You're not, I know for a fact that if you put me in a position of power and it's like, all right, direct a film about trans people, I wouldn't be able to do a good job. If they had to say like direct a slavery film, I'm not gonna do a good job. If you had me do something about an Asian American family, it's gonna be through my perspective. No matter how hard I try or how much I care or how much I wanna be a good ally, you know, I'm saying this with quotes, you need to have the people who actually have these experiences participate in the storytelling. So with Dallas Buyers Club, as good as certain people's attentions are, and as, you know, well the film was made, I th I'm more curious. I'm more curious about films that actually have the people being represented playing those characters. I know we've talked about, you know, Port Authority, which I haven't seen. I personally really like Tangerine. I love Tangerine because um, it had real people in it. I did see a fantastic one recently. I wasn't crazy about it, but I love the lead in it. I would like to see her in more things. So there's like baby steps, but overall, I still think it's very, very important. I think it's a really interesting and layered conversation, uh, strictly with the bigger movies like Dallas Buyers Club. I think we have to look at these studios are not going to make these films unless there's some drawing point to get general audiences. And sadly, where yes, having names like Matthew McConaughey, Jared Leto, um, uh, Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl, that is the drawing point that they think, okay, if we put these in here, that's going to make enough people come to the theater and see the movie. Um, and I think, I think it's just interesting because yes, Obviously, there's a lack of real representation. And yes, that is an issue. At the same time, though, these films are getting these perspectives out there. They're getting queer stories out there to the general public. Um, and it is allowing the studios, the studios are saying, this is enough to where we're going to put these stories out there um, and finance these films and make these films and give them real distribution. Um, I think it's a really layered and complicated subject because of that. Because yes, there is real issues with them. They're also undeniably, I think, doing good for the community and undeniably serving a point where I don't think it's quite as easy as just to say, you know, screw these movies. They're not giving true representation. Yes, it would be nice to see real trans and gay actors on the screen. Absolutely. I don't think anyone would deny, deny that fact. But at some point, at least in this early stage where these representations are starting to be made, I feel like some sacrifices are needed, as terrible as that sounds, to get these stories out there in general, to where they can start becoming a thing in the general public, to where then other filmmakers and other studios will start putting and financing more films that can hopefully include real representation. Um, and I think that's just one of the more complicated subjects when we talk about LGBT representation in cinema is what, how far is that, how far, much of a sacrifice are we willing to make to get these stories out there? Um, and there's no real easy answer to that. I think where a lot of people focus on the actors on screen, where I'm more curious about right now is the directors and screenwriters behind the camera, because that is not the main drawing point. No one is gonna be, oh, you have a group, you know, you have a gay screenwriter. Oh no, like that is gonna be a drawing point. No one's coming to a film for a screenwriter. So not having that representation, or most of the time I should say, but not having that representation behind the camera in the director's chair, in the screenwriter's room, 
Um, that is where I think right now the biggest crime could be is being committed because it would be so easy to switch that out and not affect a lot of the product. The actors at least have that drawing value that the studios could value, screenwriters and directors, not to the same point nearly as much. I think it's an interesting point as well where sometimes these films have to be made in order in order to sort of appreciate the ones that get it right. I think with thing, things like the, the Danish Girl, which is which has come under fire quite rightly and deservedly for its lack of representation, I think that I think that then lights a fire under people who want that on that representation on screen. Um, I'll say that again. I think, particularly with the the Danish girl, which has come into quite a significant amount of controversy, quite deservedly due to its lack thereof of of a representation on screen of a, of a trans characters. I think if you look at sort of the other side of that, I think that there'll be young filmmakers out there, screenwriters, directors, as you said, Carson's, but I think specifically of trans actors and actresses they'll look at that film and then be defined by that in, in not necessarily in anger but in in injustice and i think that's quite a powerful thing as well i think there's all there'll always be i think you can always take away even the small positives and even things that are horrific i think unfortunately you've, you've got to look at the good otherwise you'd be enamored with the bad and i think when we often get films like like the Danish girl and we'll get boys don't cry as well with Hilary Swank I think it's difficult to sort of completely annihilate boys don't cry because without that film there wouldn't have been a massive push of trans representation within cinema or understanding that person's journey so it is it is a difficult sort of maze to, to, to run through but it's interesting now that I think the momentum specifically with trans representation is is, is incredibly in the um, within the industry at the moment that's one thing in the last few years that's taken a huge huge turn uh, for the better of understanding where and why certain actors and actresses are going wrong and where representation needs to be implemented at the most. And I don't think we've even seen the cusp of what this is capable of. I think in the next few, well, even four or five years, I think we'll see a massive turning point where, not to run through the bus, uh, under the bus again, but the likes of Scarlett Johansson will take a step back and understand that this isn't the way to go about it, that representation is needed. And I think we will get to the stage where trans rights, more importantly, will be on the on the cards within cinema and hopefully within society. I think, well, again, going back to sort of reflection of art and society, I think if when you see something on film, for good or for bad, it can be, it's accepted by the audience. I think that's the conversation, not to go widely off topic. But when people say violence in cinema equates violence in the real world, I think... There, there can be a form of a form of accuracy there because of what you see on screen you find acceptable if you see a superhero save an elderly woman from four muggers you know that those muggers are in the wrong and the right thing to do is to save and help that that old woman and i think that if you see a character on screen 
that's meant to be a trans character played by a white woman, um, straight white woman, I think that then becomes problematic, problematic in the zeitgeist that that's then wildly accepted. Whereas if you see Laverne Cox play her true life character in something like Orange is the New Black, and you have something like that then within this within cinema and you have that replicated quite a few times and it becomes a social norm that's the easy way to do it it's just about fighting through that glass ceiling to be honest but it's interesting now like I said about the, the, the trans rights that I can imagine in the next few years it, that's going to be a massive 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 factor of cinema and it's now or never where and not to again get so pessimistic but you would hope, wouldn't, and not to speak for anyone, but I would hope that cinema, specifically sort of, not, not the blockbuster, but producers and studio heads now capitalise that, not in the fact that they can make money on it, but it's now the fact where they can, they can sort of give a voice to trans rights. And, and then if it takes years, if it takes months, if it takes decades, at least then they can begin the conversation for people who live in the middle of nowhere, who are against... Well, it's beyond even thinking about, but against someone being a trans, that they can see representation on on screen, and understand that it's not something to be frightened about, and it's not something to get up out of bed and be angry about. So I can hope that in the next five years that'll be a, a massive turning point. But it's interesting if we speak about it now how trans rights are a, a, a huge, and and trans representation, but. And then you've mentioned it before about James Whale's inclusion of sort of themes, LGBTQ cinema themes within Bride of Frankenstein and, and the, with his portrayal of, about Ian McKellen in Gods and Monsters, we find out more about his life and how he interjects his own sexuality and fluidity in, into his cinema. It's interesting now how we're looking back on certain moments of cinema and finding very similar topics that are, that are prevalent now that were under the radar then and the, the biggest one well, the biggest two I, I can find found is my, my one of my personal favorites if not my favorite film of all time which is the matrix specifically the, the whole franchise um by lily and lana wachowski uh, the wachowski sisters and how it's more apparent now than ever uh, through their cycles of life how that's represented through Neo's transition from being Thomas Anderson to Neo and how he takes the red pill uh, or, or the, the blue pill. Again, the, uh, the, the discussion on, 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 a, on gender identity and um, sexual fluidity and how the, they go through the matrix. They go through this portal to a different world, let's say, and they can be who they're meant to be. They, they don't have to worry about... Um, the real world it's it's an interesting analogy to have and the other thing is uh, obviously this sort of reappraisal of a nightmare on elm street to freddy's revenge which is the i think i believe it's the first and I, I'm, it may be the only um male scream queen if i'm right so it's interesting now how sort of society has this thing where we're still we're, we're still finding representation we're still finding moments of the lgbtq community that weren't prevalent 10 15 20 30 years ago and we're still finding now that these people were fighting for for representation even perhaps unknowingly speaking of cinema reflecting society with all in its trauma and its life cycle i mean 
I feel like we're in the edge now of LGBTQ, LGBTQ community um, being more powerful, being more vibrant, having more of a voice than ever, uh, which is a wonderful thing to have. I feel like now, though, that community is fighting back through cinema. And what I mean by that is that through the last few years, we're not having cinema regarding this um, genre about exploration, which I think is, has been quite a, a big uh, attribute to, uh, to its success in finding out who and what you are as a person watching this cinema and explore, exploring sexuality and fluidity. We're looking at sort of activist films with the miseducation of Cameron Post and Boyer Rays that came out a couple of years ago, which have very similar themes, one with a, with a, a, a gay a woman and another one with a, a, a gay man. But obviously we look back again and does it do a great representation of, of not being a white, being a white woman and a white man. I mean, we can argue the fact, but as Carson, as Carson said, we've got to take it of what these, these films are, of what they both are, in fact, and they are activist films. They're fighting against gay conversion therapy, which is a huge, huge thing in the UK now, which is still not illegal, which is absolutely frightening. And it's still a massive thing in the US. So the one thing I just wanted to bring up is that, you know, we're having sort of, I, I, as I mentioned before, we, in the next few years, we're having, we're going to see a massive turn in, in the trans community where representation is, is hopefully going to be a massive a turning point. Um, but it's not to say that this community is still fighting. I mean, we're still fighting um, against everything as, as well. So I just wanted to put out there that, you know, we, we talk about evolution in filmmaking. I mean, you go from John Waters, the Pink Flamingos, where ultimately it's a comedic character. And then we're going to the message of Cameron Post and Boyer raised 30, 40 years later. It's an interesting path that it's had. I'm just wondering where, where you both think that this, uh, this genre of film can go, really, in the next 10, 15 years. My thought was, like, as far as representation in the future, there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of like the ground level where people want to see people on screen who resemble themselves or have the same experiences of themselves. I think that there might be a push later on. I don't think it's going to be in the near future, but it's about people behaving the same way inside. Uh, or like having the same thoughts and feelings or the way they handle situations. It's going to be more interior rather than, you know, just the representation like you guys brought up recently. I didn't see it, but like the Star Wars thing where it's like it cuts to like three seconds of people kissing. It's like, oh, okay, they're gay and then they're gone, you know, or it's not, not going to just be enough to have a gay character on screen. It's going to be more about their interior life and about all the different variations in that. Um, there's parts of the gay community that haven't really been represented on screen. There isn't much about intersex people. There is a, a list of intersex films on the IMDb list that I might share on um, my blog or my letterbox. Uh, there's a film called Ariana. It's Italian um, by Carlo Lavagna. And it does kind of delve into that experience, but that's one film. That's one film I've found and it, it does kind of traverse more like that interior life, like how you grapple with your identity when you have a very particular problem. Asexuality hasn't been explored very much in film. Um, other than the documentary Asexual that came out like nine years ago, I haven't really seen anything that really delves into an asexual character other than, you know, Todd on BoJack Horseman. 
uh, pansexuality hasn't really been explored other than maybe the character David Rose on Schitt's Creek. So there are going to be, I think there's going to be more pushing outward and having more representation for those characters, but I think it'll probably first just be like they're there and they're represented and then I'll go more into like their interior lives and like how they're all different and there's all these different kinds of people. And maybe that's a little bit optimistic, but that's the direction I want to see things go. And that seems to be the way it has been, particularly for, you know, the lesbian community, gay community, to some degree, the bisexual com community and the trans community as well, as far as like their interior lives, like how they feel on the inside instead of just being a visual representation. So that's where I see it going. I personally see that there's like three directions where it's going to kind of expand. We talked about the activist films that are strictly just trying to be, we're gay, we have a message, we're trying to portray this. The second would be looking at more of the cross cuts of the LGBT community, such as Moonlight, which not only tackles the queer experience, but also the Black experience and how those two cross. You can see that with different sexualities, different gender identities, different races, and exploring the more nuanced um, like levels of what really being LGBT means. And then the final would be just casual representation, um, where a main character happens to be gay or the main characters both happen to be gay. But the point of the story really isn't, oh, like it's not, oh, the conflict is that they're gay. I think both Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Call Me By Your Name do that wonderfully. And I'm currently writing an article for the website about this. But those are two stories that have gay characters and have a queer identity, but their struggles aren't really that, oh, it's gay. You know, those struggles aren't people are against their relationship because it's gay or because AIDS or something like that. It's just a normal love story that happens to be gay and happens to explore the nuances in what that really means. So I would say those are the three areas where I think LGBT cinema already is naturally growing and will continue to grow. Um, and I feel like beyond that, it's kind of, it's hard to see like, what will the distant future be when we don't know about the near future? I, I, yeah, I, I think I agree with both of you. I think, as I said before, the evolution of the LGBT community on screen has evolved from the last five years to a phenomenal rate. I think even myself, to contradict myself, I think predicting where it can go, I think it's going to be an incredibly interesting, hopefully strong ride of representation that's an honest depiction of, of, of what, or well, a multifaceted depiction of, of representation we can probably find. I think that the last few years, if anything, I think the LGBT community has been like sort of a new queer cinema. So we've had Flavio Alves's um, the, the Guy Left Behind them. Um, I saw for Glasgow Film Festival and Carson also wrote a really wonderful review on the website. And we've got, you know, Barry Jenkins in the last four or five years with Moonlight and uh, Beale Street Could Talk. And we had Celine Sciamma, The Portrait of Lady on Fire, who's being sort of like an under, under, um, under scene director within this sort of genre representation throughout. Um, Gus Van Sant's been here for a while, Todd Haynes, um, Yorgos Lamithormos were the favourite. Chamuk Park, The Handmaiden. So this this representation is growing wider and wider and wider um, all over the over the world. So um, it's it's a really 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 exciting time for for this genre of film. Really exciting time for representation. Um, it is now um, audiences are uh, to, to reiterate again from what Hillary said. I think audiences have done enough now. They've showcased that they were willing to go out and spend their hard earned cash. At the blockbuster or, or um, at, at the rental store and, and or in video games and all sorts of forms of art lifestyle 
that they're willing to to sort of be ready to to, to accept and see other people's way of lives and and this representation it's just now hoping that the filmmaking side of the bargain is, is held up really but just to sort of um end on on, on a really um, poignant note um, we've discussed a variety of lgbt community um cinema but as of 2020 so from the dawn of cinema until now what are individual picks of the most divining film within this genre so my pick is Brokeback Mountain, which I think it's a film that you can say a lot about the film itself. And I think it, there's a lot of interesting debates to be had on representation and such. But I think what that meant to not just the community, but the general public is really interesting, um, especially when it came to losing Best Picture to Crash. I'm someone who every year really tries to follow the Oscar, uh, the Oscar predictions and the Oscar journey and award season. And one thing very clear right when I got into the whole conversation was that that year was more of like a scar on the community where every, you know, I think it's easy to say, oh, we're showing more representation. Oh, we're nominating this for best picture. And it was clearly the overwhelming favorite to win. It only lost like SAG Ensemble and a couple other awards. Um, and then to see that the Academy, seemingly for the only reason that it was a queer film, decided to go with a safer option, I think was a really cruel slap in the face for many, that despite, yes, we got a nomination, yes, we got this film that went to mainstream audiences, there is still so much more work that needs to be done. Um, and I think continually you see films, like Moonlight was a great example of a film that succeeded, got Best Picture, um, and finally got that win. But there's so many other films that, get close but you clearly see that there needs to be more work to be done and i think it's those fires that light real development within the community and a push for we need more representation we need to fight this more because we cannot settle with where we are now because it's not enough there's still more work to be done and i think when you look through lgbt history whether it's film or just in general it's those moments where you where the community loses a step or where the community gets punched in the face that they end up firing back and that's really the moments of huge growth and i don't know if crash didn't win best picture that year if the community would have still came in full support and pushed lgbt lgbt cinema as much as they did when something like moonlight came around um, so despite that film having its clear issues and clear divides and clear debates within it about representation, I think what that did for the queer uh, cinema, what, what that, let me restart. I think what that did for the LGBT community when it comes to cinema is undeniable. And I think it had huge impacts that affected us decades later. And I think it's still a moving force in the at least award season, if not mainstream cinema in general. The pick uh, that I made was Paris is Burning. Uh, if people aren't familiar with it, it was made in 1990. It's a documentary directed by Jenny Livingston and it profiles the uh, voguing, kind of the voguing scene in New York City way back then. Um, unfortunately, like in the middle of the AIDS epidemic, which was still going on. Uh, but I really love this film because it's not only about the marginalization of being queer or gay, lesbian, trans, and being a part of that scene, but it's also about the joy of being in that scene and being able to express yourself. Uh, so overall, I feel like it's a very joyful film. There are incredibly sad things that happen in it. Uh, and it does follow several uh, people who, you get the impression that they probably didn't live very long after it was filmed and one, subject in particular dies while they are filming. 
Um, but in particular, it, I think it's a great introduction to kind of an alternate world that very many of us aren't familiar with or don't see. Um, there's a lot of people who are poor in it. There are people of color in it. And about it's very much about what people do who are incredibly oppressed in order to make themselves happy. And because of that, I would have to recommend that. Um, I'd have to recommend that all over all the others because of its staying power. And the good news is that it just got added to the Criterion Collection. So if you're already a fan, um, I'm sure that it probably will start streaming on the channel. If not, it might be streaming somewhere else. But if you really, really just want to go out and buy it, it just got added. And I'm sure the special features and the transfer and everything are gorgeous. So I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to say two, but only because I can't, I cannot pick between them to between the two, but one of them's not, not necessarily a film. So the first one, I think is probably the quintessential pick that I think a lot of people would presume um, would be, and I would, I would, I would pick Moonlight by Jenkins film. Not only is that a multifaceted look at being black in America and how oppression and, and being repressed and being socially economically oppressed is one thing, but it's also exploration of of of, of being gay, not only at one point in, in in a man's life, but also at multiple integral aspects of, of growth, being a child, being um, um, a teenager in, in high school, uh, and then that third act, which I think is probably the most profound, where it's understanding that. Of who, of who and what you are and and not being afraid of it and I think that's a be beautifully written film it's filmmaking wise I mean it's just absolutely outstanding it winning best picture is just a icing on the cake but just for a profound moment within history very similar to to uh to Carson's point about Broadback Mountain I think it's what what we've seen with, with the result of Moonlight winning best picture is probably the result what we would have seen with Broadback Mountain um, it's just a shame that they've, they've come 15, uh, 13, 14 years apart. Um, but the second thing I wanted to, 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 to say is a defining um, sort of attribute of LGBTQ cinema that I think is only on the rise, and I think I've, I've alluded to it before. But I just wanted to sort of specifically talk about the Wachowski's filmography, because the more I look back on, I, uh, just for clarification, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Wachowski's ever since Bound, like I'm a huge, huge fan. I'm a massive apologist for the Speed Racer and I don't even have to apologize because that film is amazing in its own right. But the, we look through as a, as a, as a casual film um, audience through the Wachowski's filmography and the analogies and, and, and the sort of metaphors for, for, for this community is so apparent. It's almost like, it's almost so over, it's covert. I, I'm just finding myself like to be perplexed in the fact that nobody sort of identified this through a cloud atlas about living through multiple different lives and, and, and being a different person, yet the, like the sort of the soul carries on. I think it's sort of a beautiful analogy of you can be whoever you want to be in more, in more ways than one. And, and specifically then again with the matrix, which I've alluded to before, it's just it's just so like refreshing to know that those those elements have been there since day one and we didn't know about them and i think it having sort of a um 
revitalization within that community is also a, a, a beautiful testament to its factor that it can play on any level and that's more uh, speaking of the matrix rather than the themes in it but it's just wonderful to know that I, I saw that film um, in like 2003 and I got to see the sequels and, 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 and the impact of that film didn't really have anything to do with gender or, or, or representation and then I look back on it now and also to, to give it, I, I wrote my thesis at university on that film to explore it in the, in, a, in the vision of 2018 or 2019 and 2020 is quite special that it still lives up and it still has a powerful message to play. And I think the Wachowskis throughout their filmography, um, even in Jupiter Ascending, I think you can probably find very um, heightened qualities of, 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 of that community being, being shown, shown on screen. But Cloud Atlas, um, well, even Sensei, hey, I mean, I think that... that I think it's more of a topic of, of, of those two filmmakers cycle of, of sort of accepting of who they were and who they are. And I think that, that as again, um, culture and society often is reflected in that. And to see Sensei out with um, Lana Wachowski and then now to see The Matrix 4 and to know that both of those directors and how comfortable of who they are and comfortable in their, in their, in their gender and, and in, in their, and their definition of as a, as a person, it just makes me so excited to see that that's that that's going to be more over overtly put into their films. And I think to watch um, Lewachowski's um, Showtime series, which I forget the name of, which is my fault entirely. I'm just so happy that there's representation now for for, for young people to to be able to see those films and see those TV shows and. And at least I know that there's two active filmmakers out there who, who until their dying breaths, will showcase um, representation to the, to the highest quality that they can do. Um, but to round out uh, this special episode, let's go around the table and mention a few more recommendations of LGBTQ cinema that we haven't really spoke about that we'd like to sort of bring to the, to the table for, for, for the audience to, to seek out and watch. Hilary, let's start with you because I know that you're, uh, you're ready to go on this one. I have a list here that's quite long. Uh, I'll probably put it up on Letterboxd. So when I give up my social media information at the end, you can go and check it out. Uh, I know we've talked about Moonlight on, a lot. So I kind of think of the female counterpoint to that as far as, you know, being a woman of color. The best example I could come up with is Pariah by Dee Rees. It was done in 2011. There's so many great love stories out there. Uh, one that touched me a lot that I saw recently was Rafiki, which was made in Kenya in 2018, um, about two girls who fall in love with each other and um it's very very sweet it's very sweet and it's also incredibly colorful and, and beautiful to watch um i mentioned tangerine before um with pride month i would say check out the death and life of marcia p johnson i think that should be on netflix uh because marcia is amazing um and i could add to that but you know what i'll stop for now and i would just say like check out that list uh if you're able to uh <laughs> if you're able to go to my letterbox account so that's it for me i'll throw out carol is an absolutely beautiful film Booksmart has some fun uh representation in there cannot express enough how much i love sean baker's tangerine i know that was already mentioned but it's such a fun film um that is just so beautiful and honest representation that I think is so rarely seen. It's an honest representation of the trans experience, the black experience, of low income experience, Los Angeles experience. Like it is such a beautiful like reflection of, even from the casting choices, 
what, you know, of these characters, of their experiences, of their lives, I think is so validating some that I've talked to um, and is really, really beautiful. Um, and then I, I cannot express enough how much I love God's Only Country from Francis Lee. I know he has another film coming out later this year. Um, but that's a beautiful love story. Um, and I, I cannot recommend those enough. Those are all beautiful films. I think I might have the same problem with Hillary here with having a gigantic list and not repeating everything that you both said, which I think are wonderful um, examples of recommendations to watch. I'll keep this brief, but I do apologize if I go over. I think The Wachowski's Bound is a must, um, a, a lesbian crime drama, wonderfully directed. Um, that director all debuts, wonderful film. Uh, Sean Baker's Tangerine is a must, not only for its filmmaking uh, qualities, but it's a real life um, depiction of trans um, people on screen, um, especially with the social economic um, prejudice of, of what's happening um, in their lives is a must. I think uh, a good one to throw out is uh, Olivia Wilde's uh, Book Smart, which I think uh, plays on multiple levels, but I think it's inclusion of, uh, of uh, a young teenage girl comfortable with her sexuality, but not finding anyone that is is like her i think it's a wonderfully magical film uh that ju it's generally quite a heartwarming sort of um performance uh, as as well um daniel lezovitz's authority which i've mentioned loads of times on this um is definitely a must it does have a few issues with the white savior angle but um the performance of lena bloom is outstanding and it's wonderfully directed and the, the heat of new york um it's it's uh, tend to learn. Um, I think just to end, and uh, while this director is is not overly renowned within this community, I do want to sort of bring special mention to the late great Joel Schumacher. And the reason why I laugh there is not because I think it's a degrading thing to talk about his Batman films, but Joel Schumacher as as and I think we've we've I think Carson wonderfully put this about his discussion about representation and, 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 and queer themes have always been rampant within cinema. It's just about breaking the, uh, the glass thing to get them through, as specifically with James Whale. I think Joel Schumacher is another director who did that. And I think his representation of, of gender and, and queer cinema, especially fluidity on screen, is, is, is almost second to none. I mean, The Lost Boys should be regarded as, as, as one of the utmost um, fluid films in, in recent memory. I think his his Batman films, while there are purists out there who always talk about Peter Pan doesn't has to be white and Batman has to be this moncho character, but he dresses in leather. I mean, I mean, it's. I think Joel Schumacher, as much as Warner Brothers sort of put him on a pedestal of you have to make this film for toys. I think he toyed around with the idea of masculinity. I think we're not really ready to have those discussions yet because of these purists. But I think that go out and watch some Joel Schumacher cinema. Watch 8mm if you have to. Just but, but watch Batman Forever and give it a few a few bits of appreciation. But I think that that is it for um, this uh, special Clappercast Roundtable. Where can we find everyone on social media? Hillary? Uh, you can find me on my WordPress blog. It's theholyshrinewordpress.com. Um, you can also find me on Letterboxd at Laudanum at 33. If you do want a Schumacher recommendation um, from me, I would say flawless. It's not a flawless movie, but the late great 
Philip Seymour Hoffman really took that role seriously, playing a trans woman, and is absolutely hilarious and incredibly strong. So I would say that's definitely something worth checking out. He's acting across from Robert De Niro, and you don't even know that Robert De Niro was in the movie. So uh, as far as social media and Schumacher, I'm done. Awesome. So you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews or just Carson Tamar on uh, Letterboxd. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a great conversation. I was really happy to help this win. Yeah, thank you uh, both for, for coming on. Uh, I really do appreciate it. It's good to get that representation and discussion out there um, for the people who, do, who most definitely don't have it to the extent that they should do. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.